Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, are we contact tracing like we should be? I wonder. I want to talk about that. Very special guest with us. She's a practicing physician epidemiologist and a journalist, triple threat, who covers topics in medicine and public health. She is trained in internal medicine and pediatrics with specialties in infectious diseases and clinical microbiology and served as a disease detective at the CDC. As a researcher, she has focused on the prevention and treatment of HIV and malaria in resource poor countries. And she has worked as a medical epidemiologist at the New York City Health Department. She resides in Atlanta, GA right now in the ATL. Dr. Karen Landman joins us now on Make It Plain. Dr. Karen, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Mark. I guess all of that explains my gray hair. Uh, I don't see any. Oh, you had it. I'm looking. I don't. You said it well. And for the record, folks, she spells her name with two e's. She's not 
the Karen K A R E N that everybody's talking about. She's with that name. She's K E R E N, right? We want to be sure. <laughs> very special, Martin. Very, very special. This is a good Karen, y'all. So we welcome we welcome her. So you've been taking a look at contact tracing. Right. Um, where is that? We hear a little bit about it, but is is it really gotten off the ground? Is it doing what it needs to be doing? Well, that's a big question, Mark. Um, so first of all, do you feel like you and your listeners will know what contract tracing is as we talk about it? Or do you want me to tell you a little bit about what it means? Well, you know what? That's a good question. I I assume I know what it is, and I think a lot of people think they know what it is, too. But let's not guess on that. I think I know, but please educate us. Yeah, it's basically when you um, find out, you try to find all the cases of an infection um, that a single person has transmitted the infection to. So it's like saying, I know that you have um, you have a, a, an infection that you could have transmitted to a bunch of people. Instead of um, just surveying everybody who lives like in your city, I'm going to start with you and everybody you've had contact with and try to trace all cases of the disease by tr trying to trace them back to you. So starting with you and everyone you've had contact with. And then if I find anyone who, um, who might themselves have the disease and might have transmitted it onward, then they become a new case and I do the same thing with them. So it's sort of like trying to trace out um, the pattern of a, a, a tree's branches by starting at the place where each branch kind of branches off from the branch before it and then follow, you know, tracing out each branch until it's, there's no more branches. So it's one way of, um, of trying to contain a disease that spreads from person to person. Um, you know, but especially if we have a lot of, it's, it's useful to, to have a lot of information about where people have been, who else has been around them in those places, and, um, you know, and to be able to reach all the people in those places in order to do contact tracing. You can't really do contact tracing if you can't figure out where a person's been and who's been around them in those places, right? So um, when we do contact tracing, um, we, we start by asking a person where they've, you know, where they've been during the time that they could be transmitting the infection. So even let's say if you, um, if you have, um, it's a little bit easier to think about maybe like when you think about contact tracing somebody with a sexually transmitted infection, because you know, that's, it's, it's a lot easier to narrow down who you might've put at risk um, with an STD, for example. So you might ask somebody, all right, who have you had any kind of sexual encounters with, um, you know, since you started having symptoms? And they might give you a list of folks. And then you would, you know, potentially call those folks and say, hey, um, have you had any symptoms? Um, let's test you. Let's treat you for whatever symptoms you might have or whatever infection you might have. And then let's figure out who you might have had contact with if you actually have, um, have the infection yourself. You know, so you can figure out who that person has then maybe transmitted it onward to. So that's what contact tracing is. And normally um, when we do contact tracing, it's with um, an infection that only a few people have um, in a confined area. So like there might be an outbreak of, you, I don't know if you remember, there's a big outbreak of HIV in Indiana several years ago related to some injection drug use. 
They used contact tracing to help figure out who, who else might have gotten HIV as part of that outbreak by sharing needles. And, um, you know, they didn't do contact tracing outside of the network of folks who might have had needle sharing, might have shared needles in that part of Indiana. There's no point in doing contact tracing, you know, uh, uh, calling people out of nowhere, um, you know, even if they, if they might be at risk for HIV, calling people in Texas, unless you know that they've had contact with that group, because that was confined to Southern Indiana. But we have a situation now where we have a, a germ that is everywhere. And so we're trying to do contact tracing all over the world simultaneously. And it's an enormous effort. And it's not the way we usually do this kind of effort. So it's yeah. this is a great big experiment for a lot of people. Well, when you put it that way, um, explaining what it is, as you just explained, is not comforting. Uh, one, because of the size, but two, just in terms of what's dominating the news coverage right now, the infection rate is going up. This is a country, and, and I know we're going to talk about local and state jurisdictions, but we've got local and state jurisdiction, jurisdictions that are not even making intelligent decisions, Dr. Karen, in terms of reopening or what phase they're in. So what you just described, I don't have a whole lot of faith, but that's going the way it yeah. all works. Well, I mean, the way that you might use it is if like, okay, I live on a street with like 20 houses on it. So if one of my neighbors had COVID and they were to contact trace my neighbor, they might say, okay, you have, um, you know, you have the infection. Who have you had contact with in the last two weeks? And let's test and quarantine all of those people. And then, you know, make sure that we help you stay quarantined and get your needs met over the, or isolated, I should say, and get your needs met over the next, you know, two weeks or a month or so until you're no longer infectious. But it's not just one out of you know, 20 houses that we're dealing with right now, you know, proportionally, it's a much, much bigger number of people that we're having to do this for. So it's very hard to keep up when the, when the, when the number of people is so high. And then also, you know, it, if you, um, you know, part of contact tracing is not just um, finding cases going forward and keeping them safe, but also kind of working backward and figuring out where did my neighbor get infected? So if, you, um, if you're finding, you know, that when you do that, when I, when, when I ask my, if I'm contact tracing my neighbor and I ask him, okay, you know, where could you have possibly gotten this? Have you been on an airplane? Have you been on a bus? Have you been out and about of the house? Have you been in the market? Have you been, you know, who have you in contact with? Where could you have gotten this? You know, he'll give me a list of names and a list of places that he's been. Um, and it would make me feel a lot better if I could, you know, for almost everybody that I asked that question of, that I could actually figure out where they got infected, right? Because it would make me feel like, okay, I can trace this transmission through the community. But what we're finding is that for many, many, many cases, people don't even know where they got it right? You can't actually trace the path anywhere. And so what that suggests to people who work in public health is that we are, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn. Like we may be past the point where we can easily identify where people got infected. 
Um, and that what the, the fancy way of saying that is we don't know the chain of transmission. So is, if that's true, is, is contact tracing even viable? That's exactly the right question to ask. And I think the answer is we don't really know. And, and what do we mean by viable, right? Like, is it adding anything right now to the, to the effort? It would be adding something if it helped us identify enough of the cases that we could actually respond adequately, you know, if it helped guide our response, right? Do you understand what I mean? Like if, um, if I don't have contact tracing, um, then everything that I do for COVID, I do for everybody, right? If I don't have contact tracing, I have to assume that anybody could have the infection. I, so that means that everybody has to be quarantined, everybody or everybody has to stay home. Um, and yeah, nobody can have contact with anybody else. And we know that that is not a good situation, both for people's mental health, for their incomes, for uh, the economy, um, you know, for all kinds of things. We also know that that kind of approach disproportionately affects people who have lower income and are disadvantaged in other ways, people of color, you know, and we don't want to further disadvantage people. But um, so if, if we have contact tracing, if we if we are able to, um, you know, sort people basically into groups of you, you're not at risk because you haven't been exposed and your test is negative and you are at risk. Um, you know, you've been exposed and or you have a negative test, then we can say, OK, these people are safe to, you know, go back to work, go back to being around other people, at, you know, and, and so they're safe. And these people, but these people we need to do a little bit more for. It lets us direct resources a little bit better. Um, so it actually ends up saving us some resources if we do, if we can do contact tracing well enough and the disease is sort of contained enough that we can sort people that way. But if it's so widespread, then is contact tracing even helping us do that sorting effectively? Um, is it adding anything to our ability to allocate resources well? So I think that's a really big question. So to what extent is contact tracing being implemented right now? Is it being implemented to a significant extent at all in any jurisdictions? Yeah, I mean, you're in New York City, right? Yep. In New York City, they've hired 3,000 contact tracers, um, which is the right number for New York City. The, uh, the sort of proposed ratio of contact tracers to population is, uh, and this is, I think, proposed by NACHO. This is the National Association of... Um, I forget exactly what it stands for, but it's the, the local health departments association. And I think they have uh, several thousand local health departments that they represent and advocate for. Um, they suggest that you need to have 30 contact tracers for every 100,000 people. And so in New York City, they got about 10 million people. That actually works out to have 3,000 contact tracers is about right for New York City. Um, but New York City is one of very few jurisdictions that has the right number of people for its population size. There are a lot of places that have far, far fewer um, people than it really needs to have. And, um, you know, my state uh, is, 
unfortunately one of them, uh, you know, and I'm not sure how well New York State is doing, but it, there's a huge amount of variation between states and between sort of large cities in how well they're meeting the need for contact tracers in their area. Okay. Um, interesting. Yeah. But again, well, well, let me ask this, this. The other countries around the world who have been doing better, Dr. Karen, at slowing their spreads than we have been doing in the United States. Has contact tracing made a difference in those places? Yeah, it has. And the reason is because um, when they started reopening, they had far, far, far fewer cases than we did. They were at a very low point on those, you know, you know, those curves that you see everywhere of how many cases per day are seeing. They were at a very low point in those curves. So that meant that when they started seeing cases pop up and that curve start to trend upward, they could pick off each one of those and assign them to a contact tracer immediately. And um, in doing that, stop further spread. And so they could turn that curve from an upward curve into a plateau and then eventually kind of help it come back down. I don't know if you remember South Korea, they did a really good job early on. They closed a lot of places down. They had a really aggressive testing and, and um, uh, isolation program early on. There was a lot of good public messaging. They had a lot of good things that they did. And then they reopened. And um, there was an event where somebody went to a couple of bars in this big nightlife district and a whole bunch of people got exposed. And there were a whole bunch of new cases. Um, they knew that almost instantaneously. They knew it very quickly because um, they were doing contact tracing. And so when one person turned up, um, and I'm, I'm speculating about how this unfolded, I, you know, but this is about how contact tracing works. One person turned up sick after going out. Another person turns up sick after going out. They put those people together in the same club on the same night and they say, we need to contact trace everybody who was in that club. We need to call everybody in that club, test everybody who was in that club and quarantine everybody who was in that club and all of their contacts too. And so even though they did have spread of the disease right after they reopened, they crushed that uh, that little super spreader event because they had contact tracing in place. We aren't doing that here. People went out to the bars, you know, over Memorial Day weekend and have gone out since then. And we were still kind of scrambling to scale up our contact tracing and we couldn't call everybody and we didn't call everybody in all those places. And so people just um, went home and hung out with their friends, you know, the next day or with their families and the disease spread. And that's why we have not been able to, you know, uh, tamp that curve down. So the key is really um, having those that contact tracing and then all the other things that it needs, you know, to work, the testing, the, the masks available to people, you know, the, the quarantine, whatever it takes to quarantine, which is, you know, involves social programs, people getting money so they don't have to go to work as part of, you know, enabling contact tracing. All those tools need to be in place before you reopen. And we just haven't done that in the U.S. So, Dr. Karen, if you could um, prescribe the best strategy, what would you what would you say? What would you suggest? What needs to happen really immediately? Yeah, this is a really tough question, Mark, and and it's 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 
there are a lot of really good people working on this and I'm in a privileged position of not actually having to make this decision and then get yelled at because there's no one who's not going to get hurt by the decisions that folks have to make. But I think fundamentally what you need to do in order for contact tracing to, I mean, in order for any of this to work is to disincentivize uh, people from exposing others to um, to whatever they might have. Uh, flip the other way, you wanna make it possible for people to take care of themselves and of their families. And that means basically paying people to stay out of work if they're sick, um, paying, you know, paying people to um, bubble or pod themselves um, with, you know, folks who are also able to uh, pod themselves. I mean, the reason that people are having to break the rules and are having to have contact with, um, you know, other folks who spread the infection to them is very often, it's not just because people want to go out, although that's certainly part of it, but it's also because people have to go out. And if we make it possible for people to stay home and take care of themselves, I think we'll see, um, you know, people able to comply with the isolation and quarantine and some improvement. So I think one of the things that I would like to see done is, you know, really leaning into the um, things like the payment protection program um, or paycheck protection program and other programs that help folks um, kind of pay the rent and, and take care of their needs. But you know, that alone isn't gonna do it. There are people who are, um, who are getting out and about in an unsafe way because they, they want to and they don't really understand the, the social benefit of, um, or, or they don't really care about the social benefit of staying home and, um, you know, and, and, and being safe. Uh, and that- So I don't think I can make anybody else sick. Well, I'm asymptomatic. Yeah. Right, that's, that's the attitude. It's just me, you know, it's my, my decision and it really only affects me. And I think, you know, people just have a lot of trouble seeing the downstream effects um, and feeling like what impacts somebody else actually should matter to them. And I think, you know, a lot of this is human nature. It's very hard to put yourself in other people's shoes, but some of it is also our culture. Some of it is just, um, you know, the, what, what Americans, um, are like it's 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 our the way we think of ourselves is not a, we're not a collectivist kind of society right so i think there's a, a much more difficult kind of culture change that would really need to happen for us to see big changes in um in our in, in these curves so that's not answering your question though right like what what would i prescribe what would i like to see our leadership do but, well, but and let me just add to that as you answer that in terms of leadership. Yeah. If, if, if I understand correctly, this really happens and is implemented and administered at the local state or local level. Is that accurate? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, contact tracing is for the most part happening. Uh, being driven at the state level. Some states that have good relationships with local health departments are giving them some say and some power in driving contact tracing, but they don't have to. Some, you know, a lot of states are not doing that. So again, what would be ideal for states to get on the stick and start doing that and or, or what? Do you mean with regard to contact tracing yeah. in particular? 
I think what really should have happened to begin with is to, so what happened is, um, is that basically there was this edict that governors should come up with a plan for contact tracing in order to get funding for it. And what should have happened is that state health departments should have been uh, tasked with coming up with contact tracing plans because um, they have, you know, their incentives are very different than the incentives that a governor's office has. They're not politically driven. Um, and so, and many of them do have uh, relationships with local health departments. Um, so it would have uh, taken away some of the barriers that some states are facing um, in, in allowing state health departments to delegate and push out some of that responsibility to local health departments, where, where actually there's a lot of expertise in contact tracing. Um, you know, another problem that precedes all of this is there's just been a decades-long um, decimation of, um, of, of health departments at all levels, but from the CDC on downward, but especially at the local and state levels. We've just been draining money away from these, um, these agencies um, because, uh, you know, there's just a, a lot of misunderstanding uh, by elected officials of their value. And there was actually a great story in Kaiser Health News today all about just how we have uh, systematically defunded public health. So even though there's, you know, there's great brain power and practice in doing these things, even if we gave them the uh, opportunity to do this now, they wouldn't be able to do a lot of contact tracing without a whole lot more money um, infused into them. Um, and, and it would be difficult for them to scale it up immediately because you know, there, there's many of them are operating on a skeleton tr crew to begin with right now. So some have raised concerns about, to me, um, and I haven't gotten too much into it, but I'll just share it with you. Sure. About contact tracing and people feeling as if they're being surveilled. Yeah. Um, especially within black community and other historically discriminated against communities. Um, help us feel a little bit better about that if, if possible. Well, I understand where that's coming from. You know, public health has a checkered past in many ways um, in its interactions with the black community, um, not even beginning with Tuskegee, but that's just one of the more um, egregious and, and more well-publicized examples. But, you know, like many other institutions in the U.S., you know, we've got some structural racism just baked in and, um, and it's difficult to dismantle. And I don't blame a lot of folks for lacking trust. Um, I will say that, you know, the, everything that I've heard about contact tracing programs um, has involved, you know, a lot of transparency about the fact that data collected gets chucked after 14 to 21 days. It's not passed on to federal authorities. It's not used for any purpose other than the immediate ability to help, you know, folks who've been exposed keep themselves and their families and loved ones and contacts safe. So I, it would be really good to, to see some examples of how local and state health departments are communicating that people. I think it's, you know, we are all, even those of us who have not been, um, you know, sort of on the, on the worst end of, of the consequences of systemic racism, a lot of us also don't trust um, the government's ability to safely handle our data. Uh, so I, I completely empathize with, with this, but I will say that it is not 
um, you know, people who've been designing apps to do this, but even the, the folks who are not, who are just using, uh, you know, Excel spreadsheets and a telephone to do contact tracing, are uh, have practices in place to help get rid of the data, purge the data, and um, and de keep it de-identified um, if they, you know, if they hold on to numbers, even just, you know, accounts of the number of people that they contact trace going forward just to prevent anybody's privacy from being um, from being invaded and they're not they're not collecting data that are um, particularly sensitive they shouldn't be collecting things like social security numbers and that sort of thing um, it's really just contact info you mentioned apps I mean what role does technology play in contact tracing it's still a hypothetical one um, I think in many places. I mean, I know a lot of states have bought into apps like there's, you know, here's the thing. We are we all carry these around um, or something like me. So many of us carry these around and they um, they already contact. They already trace us like that's how Google Maps tells you where the traffic is bad is because it knows how many signals are coming from this on, you know, 7585 connector in Atlanta. So our data is are, are already being used by a lot of companies to, in ways that actually help us. Um, and there are great ideas that like Apple and Google had about doing something similar to help figure out where people were congregating, especially if somebody there had been sick. So, you know, um, for example, if my phone says, uh, you know, to Google that I had been at the supermarket at the same time that somebody else's phone was telling Google that they were at the supermarket and that person got contact trace, you know, maybe my phone could alert me. Or, and this is actually something that was happening in a couple of um, South Asian, Southeast Asian countries. They were doing this um, and it was working because, you know, people, people trusted the system enough for that to work. But I don't think we trust the system enough for that to work here. So even though we have that capacity, that's not being used right now, so far as I know. Um, but there are some apps that just basically collect the data for the people who would otherwise be making the phone calls. Like, you know, one of the things that contact tracing involves is let's say I, um, if I were to get a call right now from someone doing contact tracing, what they would ask me to do is first of all, just tell them how I'm feeling now and then check in every day for the next two weeks, um, you know, just take my temperature, record my temperature, you know, and if I and look out for any symptoms like a cough or a headache or, you know, any symptoms of COVID and fill in a log that says what, what my symptoms and what my temperature is. And if I haven't been infected, it'll be negative the whole time and nobody has to do anything about that. Um, and wouldn't it be so much easier for them if I could just like punch a couple numbers on an app every day, um, you know, to just record that instead of talking to a person, right? Um, so that's what these apps are mostly designed to do is collect data like that. So they're not, most of them are not designed to track us anywhere, you know, to do any of those sophisticated geolocation things. It's really more data collection, at least so far as I've seen, even though we have the capacity to do a lot more. So is the ball, in your estimation, Dr. Karen, ever gonna move forward on contact tracing? Or are we just gonna kinda stay where we are? Uh, you, you, you folks, and Dr. Karen, let me just emphasize this. Uh, she has a piece in, uh, in Medium. Hey America, what happened to contact tracing, unused tech tools, and a coordination vacuum? Uh, 
between state and local health departments can help explain why contact tracing is not going well. Let me just lift this up. Nearly 100,000 contact tracers are needed to conduct adequate and efficient contact tracing for COVID-19 in the United States. Although in flux, the current number of contact tracers at work is likely well below that figure. Last week, CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield testified that about 27 or 28,000 people were doing contact tracing work across the country at the beginning of June. So that's barely a third of what's needed. And we're talking, there aren't a lot of people making noise about it, as we know, quite frankly. Uh, we're still kind of arguing about whether should we open, reopen, should we wear masks, not wear masks. And we know whose fault that is. So it's, it's contract, contact tracing ever going to uh, increase, pick up? Is it going to catch fire, so to speak? What, what, what do you think? Seeing the pattern that we're seeing now on our case curve in the U.S., the idea that we could try to contain this right now with contact tracing all over this country is a little bit like imagining putting a Band-Aid over a fire hydrant, you know, that's come loose. I mean, we're just not going to contain it right now nationwide with that. It's, there, are, there are parts of this country where aggressive contact tracing probably makes sense, you know, where there's not that much spread. And actually, you know, New York City might be one of those places. Um, I, I haven't looked at the latest case curves, but, you know, if you're only having, um, you know, a few tens to a few hundred cases a day in a really large city um, and you have a really large contact tracing force and you have a lot of tests available to you, um, you know, and you can close down your city to um, to influx of people from the outside, you know, you could potentially catch most of the cases that, that are cropping up, trace them back, get everybody who had contact with that person to, you know, hunker down you know, and actually make it effective and make the juice worth the squeeze. But in places like where you've got an explosion of cases, you know, and there's no other controls in place, you know, and there are lines all the way, you know, in the, all the way around the block, like, you know, we saw pictures of Houston, people all the way around the block trying to get tested and getting in fights, not being able to get tested. You don't have all those other things in place that would allow you to actually, uh, you know, make a dent with contact tracing, it seems a little bit like pissing in the wind. Excuse me, I'm like, can I say that on your podcast? It seems a little <laughs> you already said it, you just said it. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's just not going to make that much sense. So we have a, a country that is so big and so different that there are places where it's, it probably makes some sense. Um, but there are, there are probably a lot of places where it, it's not, it's not controlled enough for us to, to really get a lot of benefit from it. What's next for you? You're an epidemiologist. What's next for you? What are you looking at next? What what forecasts or recommendations are, are you gonna be looking into in the in the days to come? Gosh, you know, um and you're in Georgia. Yep. Now your if your numbers aren't they going up too? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
They are, you know, our governor is currently on um, a, what did he call it? It's a, a, a wear a mask fly around tour where he's going to a bunch of different um, localities in Georgia and, and speaking to groups of people about the importance of wearing a mask. Uh, and that's good. You know, um, it should have happened months ago. And I think it's only happening now because um, elected officials are seeing that this is real. It is coming back. People are not wearing masks for reasons that have nothing to do with health. And, um, you know, and I think they're hoping that they can kind of um, catch up, you know, on, uh, do some catch up work on, uh, on getting people wearing masks. We'll see if it works or not. You know, um, people keep surprising me, usually not for the better, but maybe one day they will surprise me for the better and, you know, and we'll get everybody wearing masks. That would be great. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, this is a very hard, it's very hard to predict um, what fresh hell is going to come with every week that this virus changes and that its epidemiology changes. Um, but, you know, a lot of things in this country don't really change until they affect uh, white people of means. And with so many white people of means now making the decision to not protect themselves and their families, I um, suspect, and this is I'm not happy about this, but I suspect that we're going to start seeing more cases of this infection among white people of means. And um, that may be what it takes to start seeing a serious effort from our government to control it and to deal with its effects and um, to try and prepare for what we think will be a really difficult fall instead of just, you know, letting it happen. Um, I, that would be a really pleasant surprise if that were the response of our elected officials rather than um, the sort of uh, Darwinian approach that they've been taking of just, um, you know, letting this disease take its course um, and, and hoping for herd immunity, which, you know, we don't even know if that's going to be a real dynamic that we can get out of this virus. So, um, I, you know, it's still a mystery to me what's going to happen, but... Um, I am hopeful that they may uh, end up doing the right thing, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Um, I, I will say that I, I hope that one thing that we can, I hope I'm not going on too long here, Mark. No, no. But one thing that this is highlighting for a lot of people is that we are all connected, no matter how much we, we might like to think that, you know, for example, my healthcare is my healthcare and it's independent of your healthcare. Um, that's not, that's a really false separation. Your health matters to me because, uh, you know, wh whatever our relationship is, whether we are neighbors, whether we share a subway car occasionally, whether you sell something that I like to buy, um, whether I sell something that you like to buy, you know, whether we, uh, whether our kids go to the same daycare, you know, whether we work in the same building, we're connected to each other. All of us are connected to each other. And, um, what's bad for you ends up being bad for me, and what's uh, good for you ends up being good for me, and um, and that goes for all of us. And I hope that at at some point in this pandemic, we will come to realize that um, none of us are well unless all of us are well, and none of us are cared for unless all of us are cared for, and that we can build on this to um, to you know, reduce the effect that disparities in so many other domains have on 
um, on our health, our collective health. So that's what I'm, that's my great hope for this. But again, you know, people are disappointing. <laughs> Mark, I'm going to have to tell you. So, um, but it's, I'm, still, I'm still hopeful. Well, I guess we have no choice but to be hopeful and prayerful as well. Our guest has been Dr. Karen Landman. You're going to be writing some more? I am, yeah. Oh, good. So we'll look for that. Stay in touch with us. And uh, we may want to, well, we will want to keep you close at hand as one of our epidemiological experts, if you don't mind. Yeah, I would uh, love to talk again. But we appreciate you. Folks, again, check out her latest piece at uh, Medium. Uh, and those of you who are tuned into the podcast will also uh, share the link with you on the site. Hey, America, what happened to contact tracing? Right. Karen Landman is, uh, has been our guest. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so much, Mark. Good talking to you. Good to talk to you as well. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.